Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. But if you have like the entrepreneurial DNA strand in your body, in your being, you can't ignore it. And it's to those people that I say, you, you have to go forward. Courtney Klein believes that entrepreneurs hold the solutions to the world's most pressing problems. With this mission in mind, she founded SeedSpot, an incubator supporting diverse, impact-driven entrepreneurs. Within schools and communities throughout the U.S., underrepresented founders receive training, mentorship, and tools to launch and scale their ideas for change. Since Courtney launched SeedSpot, she's helped hundreds of social entrepreneurs start ventures that positively impact people's lives. In today's episode, she shares her personal startup story, which involves deeply understanding a problem while also trusting her intuition. Courtney also tells us her best entrepreneurship advice. So if you've got the seed of an idea in mind, maybe to start a business or possibly to take a new direction, keep listening for inspiration on ways to help that idea grow. So SeedSpot started almost seven years ago now. I was an entrepreneur in college um, when I started my entrepreneurial journey and had the fortune of receiving some early support from a university, um, Arizona State University, funded my first idea and surrounded me with this wealth of mentors and advisors and partners that, you know, to be 21 and surrounded by all that type of support really helped accelerate my first organization into the world. And as I exited that organization, I thought to myself, you know, where do you go if you don't have a university, if you don't have the resources to surround you, especially if you're in an area where that might not be as prominent as, say, a San Francisco, a Boston, New York. And so starting in Phoenix, uh, yeah, seven years ago, wanted to build an incubator that would support all entrepreneurs, um, not the likely suspects, not necessarily the unlikely suspects, but everybody and be a safe space for all entrepreneurs that had ideas to come to that wanted to create positive change in the world. So SeedSpot is a nonprofit um, or an incubator really working to serve entrepreneurs in all communities uh, with structured programs, um, access to curriculum, mentorship, capital opportunities to really elevate this idea that in every community there exists change makers and in every community there exists a resource and a base that if we could just tap into it and connect it, um, there'd be no reason necessarily for you know, founders and entrepreneurs to stop their idea prematurely or never pursue it in the first place because they didn't have a spot to go. So that at our core is really our mission to empower um, entrepreneurs all over to find the resources and capital and mentorship that they need to take an idea from the very seed of an idea um, all the way to scale. So I think there's a lot of people out there who 
want to start something, they have an idea like this, especially one where it's like, I'd love to start an incubator. How did you actually take that from idea to action? Ooh, so the first thing I did and we advise any entrepreneur to do is really make sure you understand the problem. Um, and for me, I found myself sitting in nights and weekends at coffee shops before I launched SeedSpot talking with people in Phoenix that had an idea, that saw a problem, that wanted to create some change, but really didn't know where to go. And so for me, the first step was validating that there was a problem to be solved. And that problem was that there were people that had ideas, but they didn't have any place to go. And so, you know, I, I would advise anyone that's trying to start an idea to, to really anchor into the problem, really deeply understand the problem, who has that problem, how big is that problem, and then begin surrounding yourself with people that, you know, can help amplify and, and help you see more clearly how you might solve that problem. Um, so it was really identifying these entrepreneurs and these individuals in Phoenix that had ideas and wanted to go somewhere. Um, that was the catalyst for me taking the first few steps to, to start to raise some capital and put the building blocks together to actually launch it. Like actually, literally, how did you find those people? Were you like going to other incubators and accelerators? How do you find your target market? So we set out, um, we, we kind of did it in, I guess, two ways. One was knowing where these people were. So co-working spaces, coffee shops, um, a lot of people were at startup events, um, you know, out meeting with investors and getting turned away or rejected very quickly. So we kind of built a, a network of people around us that could refer entrepreneurs to us. And then we went out the gate. I would, you could argue prematurely with a press release and said, like, this is what's happening. <laughs> we at the time had no curriculum. We had no building. We had you know, no infrastructure, we had very little capital, and we just went for it and said, like, come on, come all, and we had 191 entrepreneurs apply um, within six weeks. And that was shocking and jarring, and it was also like, oh, geez, like, we got to actually build this thing now. <laughs> um, so that type of validation was in part like guerrilla tactics and in part just like throwing it out there and seeing what happens and not being afraid of the outcome. And I think that was the biggest lesson I learned was just like throw it and see if it sticks. And if it does, like pursue it and continue to trust that if you keep throwing things at the wall and it keeps sticking, then you're on to something. So I just want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly. So you have this idea for an incubator. You start finding entrepreneurs and interviewing them and trying to understand what their pain points are. And then quickly after that, you release a press release to just let people know that you're starting an incubator. Um, you have 190 people apply. All of, all of this is correct? Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think I think at that time we maybe had like $10,000 in funding. And the way that started was going out and asking local corporations, banks, accountants, like law firms, anyone who would listen to say, hey, will you throw in five grand? Like we're looking for 50 partners to throw in five grand. And it was a low enough barrier to entry that once we started to see people biting and then we could reference like, hey, so-and-so just put in five grand. Would you put in five grand? Would you put in five grand? But at the time of the actual press release, uh, I am confident that we did not have really more than like uh, 10, maybe 20 grand. And it was our first investor, um, an individual who to this day is on our board and a dear friend and colleague who was the first believer that took a bite at the apple and said, like, I'm going to invest in this. And slowly people started to follow on. But 
we really didn't have much. Uh, we took a big gamble <laughs> throwing it out there <laughs> and telling the world that we were going to do it before <laughs> we actually had anything built. That's, that's a common thing I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs is just kind of taking the leap and then trusting that you can build the wings as you're about to fly. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about that time. You have 190 people who've applied for your first kind of cohort or whatever it, mm-hmm. it was called. Um, what did you do from that point on? So we built, um, we continued to fundraise. Uh, we knew that we had to have some more resources and make a livelihood, you know, to, to do it or justify at least a, <laughs> a portion of, um, of the funds being able to support, you know, building out a team and finding a building and all of that. So we did find a building. We found a warehouse where we started. We built a very scrappy curriculum. Um, and then we started to call on mentors and advisors that could come in and, and co-teach with us and actually build out like, what is this program? What are we actually doing? And then we threw a really big launch party and the mayor came out. By then we had interviewed and selected our first 16 for our full-time cohort. Um, We ended up opening up some additional programmings to create some sort of of structure for the other, you know, hundred and some odd that hadn't been accepted. Um, And so we just rolled. Um, The launch party drew out um, hundreds of people into this warehouse. We threw a big party, had a big band, all the entrepreneurs got up on stage and said, this is my idea, you know, before they ever started the cohort with us. And then we went through, it was an eight month program when we first started out. So we were with those entrepreneurs for eight months. Um, we refined the curriculums. We went, we made a ton of mistakes. We learned a lot of hard lessons. And from there we just refined it. And now seven years later, um, (laughs) it doesn't look anything like it did the first year. I can say that. And can I ask, how old were you when you launched this? Gosh, so that was 2000. I'm 35 now. So I was 20, was I 28, 29? So can I just ask, a 28-year-old woman walking around saying that she's going to start an incubator, going to companies, knocking on doors, going and interviewing entrepreneurs, why do you think they believed that you had something that they wanted to be a part of? (laughs) Because I believed. Mm. Um, I, I, I can't point to any other reason why someone would take that seriously <laughs> other than the <laughs> fact that, that I believed in it. And I, I deep in my gut to this day, believe in it. And I think that goes a long way. It doesn't necessarily go all the way, but it goes a long way when you're sitting across the table from someone that is either going to trust you with their idea, which we wouldn't be around if it weren't for the entrepreneurs that trusted us. Like I can say that, take the capital, take the corporate partners, take everything else away. We would not exist if the entrepreneurs we work with didn't trust us. And so I think having the kind of internal calculus and the gut, you know, continuously just pulling me and saying, this this is meaningful work. And I believe in this. I think that was the factor that gravitated people toward it, that they trusted, or at least were willing to take a gamble on that dream and that idea and holding true to that and not backing up. And I can say as a, as a female in Phoenix, launching a social impact incubator in a state where that was not a thing that was happening seven years ago. Um, and you could argue in many communities that we're now in um, serving entrepreneurs, that's not a thing uh, that's commonplace. So we hit a lot of walls. We hit a fair amount of resistance. A lot of people questions like, what, you're doing what? Or they couched as like, oh, that's nice. And that's soft. And because it's social impact, you, you know, must only be nonprofit ideas. And like, we deal with that still today. Um, but bucking this norm that you can have a community support ideas that are both profitable 
and create impact is really the nexus of, of why we do what we do. And I think why people have continued to follow us all these years. So you've mentioned a couple times now some of the mistakes that you made at the very beginning. Now that you have the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would have actually just done differently at the beginning? Ooh, um, I think I would have been a little bit more bullish um, out the gate about the, the why behind our work. And I think it has taken me a number of years to be comfortable, um, you know, outright saying that startup culture is slanted toward white males with tech startups who are under the age of 35, period. Um, and, and coming out the gate, I think that was an undertone of why we were doing the work, that we were serving female founders, we were serving underrepresented founders, we were serving entrepreneurs with disabilities, we were serving minority entrepreneurs, but it wasn't something that we started with. It was just in the DNA of who we were. And I think in hindsight, I took that for granted that like, of, of course, we would serve any entrepreneur. Um, of course, we would welcome all founders, but that's not commonplace. And in hindsight, I would have been a lot more bullish um, in staying that you know, less than 7% of venture capital goes to female founders, less than 1% if you're um, African-American founder. Like it is crazy that the way the deck is stacked against entrepreneurs in many communities um, on the sole basis of gender or identity or ethnicity. And we're now starting to beat that drum pretty loudly and have a lot of great partners alongside us doing that and other incubators that have taken that on. Um, but I do wish out the gate that that would have been more prominent in, in, our, in our why. Do you think that that kind of distinction gives you a competitive ad- advantage at this point? You know, I, th- I think so. I think there's a few reasons um, that we... Um, are different than other incubators. Um, one is this notion of inclusivity and, and across the board. 49% of our founders now are female, 45% are minority. Our mentor network is over 50% women and minority mentors. And this whole notion of social modeling that you, you have to build a culture where people feel integrated and people feel safe. It's, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion and the adage of, you know, you can invite a person to the dance, but do they actually dance at the party? Mm. And I think we've been really intentional and, and, and still have a long ways to go ourselves of, how do we really build an organization that's reflective of those we serve? Um, and so I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is that we don't take equity in the entrepreneurs that we work with and most other incubators, that's their model of sustainability. That's how they pay the bills is by you know companies that exit or do well, um, pay back, or they at least have a stake of the company. And as a nonprofit um, and just in our DNA, we really wanted to create a safe space that entrepreneurs weren't giving up um, anything the minute they walked in the door and that we as an organization were not biased in saying, well, we're only going to take the companies that are high growth because that's how we're going to keep the doors open. So I think that's kind of ubiquitized our approach and, and the ability to, to serve all entrepreneurs. And then the social impact angle definitely is, um, is not the norm. There's certainly more incubators now that do have a social impact component to it. Um, but most are still looking just at the bottom line of profitability. And is that essentially the reason why that you guys are a nonprofit? Oh, in part, yes. Um, if we're not going to take equity or charge entrepreneurs, and that's the other thing is, you know, the barrier to some of these programs, it's like, if you can't afford the entry fee, you can't play. 
And so for us to be able to subsidize our programs to a very nominal fee, we do require that all entrepreneurs have some skin in the game, but you know, it's as low as $50 for some of our programs. Um, so we removing all those barriers. We, yeah, we have to sustain our efforts in, in another way. And a big portion of that is philanthropic funding. And the reason we're a nonprofit, um, is yeah, just to, to keep, keep the lights on, um, through the generosity of these amazing corporate and foundation partners and individuals that have believed in our work and, and really supporting the entrepreneurs that we serve. Um, so kind of taking a broad look at this incredible organization that you've built over the last seven years, I'm curious, what's the most painful lesson that you've learned? Who there's been many. Um, <laughs> I think the hardest part for me, and it's uh, probably largely just my personality is the uh, trying to keep everybody happy and, um, at the sacrifice of myself, um, and the culture of the organization and there were some definitely choices along the way um, that I didn't trust my intuition, whether it was, um, I, I think it, it's like, you, you know, some things off and you won't do anything about it. And there have been multiple times where something has felt off either through a partnership, an entrepreneur that we accepted in, a member that we brought on the team that, that just felt off. And I think the more I've grown as a leader, the more confident I've become in, in trusting that intuition and that instinct um, and defending vehemently the culture of the organization at all costs. Um, and that includes me, as, as awkward or as egotistical as that may sound, that I think as a founder, we're often compromised and the organization is first and the leader is second or the founder is second. And finding that tension point that when something's unhealthy or feels unhealthy in my life because of how I'm being treated or a situation that arises, like if that's going to impact me, the organization's going to be impacted as well. And I think I often wouldn't defend myself in those situations and therefore the organization would suffer from it as well. And that that's a hard lesson when you're a people pleaser <laughs> or trying to keep, keep all parties happy. Um, that being able to stand up and yeah, and, and defend what I believed was right early. Uh, I always did it, but sometimes way too late in the game. Uh, and I think I'm building that. It's like a muscle. You have to exercise it, the ability to make hard decisions and hard choices. And honestly, the number of founders that I talk to that feel off, that it's like, yeah, I'm talking to this investor. I'm like, there's something that just doesn't feel right, but the capital's on the table and they're talking a good game. It's like, no, <laughs> trust your instincts, either get comfortable really fast or walk the other way. Um, and it's just, it's so common, I think amongst founders that they feel like you've just got to hold it all together, um, instead of trusting your instinct. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of those times when you feel compromised or like you have to keep it all together, I'm curious if there's ever been a time that you've considered giving up or walking away. And if so, how did you get through it? Hmm. I don't know that I've ever considered giving up, um, I definitely have had moments where I felt like, is this the right path? Like, am I, am I crazy? Like, is this really the right move to make? And I can say, you know, we started out in Phoenix and the intention at the time was just to build this thing for one community. And we had to pivot the entire business model, like 180 in order to serve other communities. And we had a waiting list of literally dozens of communities that said, will you please launch a seed spot in my community? Will you please come here? And at the time, we, we just couldn't. The model wasn't scalable. 
and it was a hard, hard, hard fought battle um, to pivot the entire, I mean, the team, the board, the invest, the donors, like entrepreneurs, the community, the press, like everybody to say like, we have to do more. We have to serve more communities. Like there are way more entrepreneurs out there that we're not reaching right now because our model is so dependent on an in-person hyper-intensive, you know, months and months on end training and support that we can't scale. And so that was a breaking point for me, certainly, in pivoting the ship and successfully. Um, we'll be in 10 communities this year with Seedspot on the fast track, hopefully, to dozens more thereafter. Um, and I think the second hard choice for us to make was around um, serving younger entrepreneurs that we launched a high school program three years ago using our exact same curriculum, but teaching teachers in high schools across the country to empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, And that was, again, a deviation from the core business model. And there were lots of conversation as to whether or not that should be a separate entity or should that take the front seat and adult entrepreneurs take a back seat and all these things that bubble up when when you challenge, you know, a tried and true model that people are accustomed to. And so I think time and time again, pushing the envelope and really getting people comfortable. And if they're not comfortable, then just pushing through anyway um, to make something happen that you believe is right or that you see a need and there's a problem to be solved and you just have to plow through. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just imagining you guys in 10 communities and and more to come. uh, That makes me feel so happy. Thank you. Um, So I'm curious around what has been one of your favorite moments so far during this work. Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, Like, I just like glow when you ask that question. There's been so many beautiful moments. of like triumph of like grit of, of entrepreneurs that didn't believe they could. And they did. And I mean, you name the story, right? We had an entrepreneur a few months ago that was on shark tank pitching um, and did so successfully. We had a, a young man we worked with in our very first cohort, which will forever be a pride and joy moment for me. Um, an adult with autism who wanted to open a bakery to employ others with autism. And seven years later, Stuttering King Bakery is still in business. And if anyone is looking for delicious scones or muffins, you've got to order. <laughs> um, we called it the Seed Spot 15 because we were all gaining weight like the freshman 15 when he was in the cohort. Um, all the way to like, we had a team from Newark, New Jersey, a high school there, uh, a KIPP school in Newark that launched our high school program and seeing those students on the stage at National Demo Day, the first time they've been on a plane, the first time they've been across the country, and the first time that they said to us, like, thank you for believing that we were capable. Um, And so many people doubt us just because we're young. And it's like, that to me is the quintessential, like, so many entrepreneurs are doubted, um, whether it's because of their age, their gender, their ethnicity, their stage of idea, they're just dismissed the minute they walk in the door. And so my proudest moments are when all of those entrepreneurs see a glimmer of hope, have a mentor take them seriously, have an investor sit down, if not giving them capital, just giving them advice. Um, But this notion that we have to democratize access, um, those are the proudest moments for me. So as, as a fellow founder, I think you and I have even had conversations sometimes about how hard <laughs> it is to be a founder of a company. Um, and many of the women that I talked to on this show and many of the people that we've interviewed in the magazine have joked around or very seriously talked about how they would, if anyone came to them and had an idea for a business, they would tell them not to do it. Um, just because mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur 
is both risky and it's also not for the faint of heart. Um, so I'm curious about why do you encourage so many people to start companies? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I feel like they're twofold. Um, and I describe it often as like, if you have a raspberry seed lodged in your back molar, right? It's like one of those gnawing things that like the non-entrepreneurs, like you put in a piece of gum and it's gone, you never think twice about it. But if you have like the entrepreneurial DNA strand in your body, in your being, you can't ignore it. And it's to those people that I say, you, you have to go forward. And you have to do so cautiously. Not every idea is a good idea. Not every business is going to be successful. In fact, most of them won't be. But if you can go through a process to validate that that raspberry seed is inside of you, like that seed of idea is planted there for a reason. If you can validate that there's a real problem to be solved and there's a real customer and there's a real way that you can be profitable or at least scalable, um, you, you have to do it. And and I think about all those ideas that die, all those seeds and notions that we have inside of us, these fleeting thoughts, like what does the world look like if they don't have a chance to see the light of day? And that's why I encourage entrepreneurs or people that think they may be an entrepreneur, even people that don't and never will identify as being an entrepreneur. Like if you have that notion of a problem and you have it within you to work through a process to determine if there's something there, like you have to. <laughs> Um, all right. So you have, at this point in your journey, worked with countless entrepreneurs and probably have a, a vast toolkit to choose from in terms of advice that you would give to people who are aspiring entrepreneurs. So I'm curious if you can distill that down into the top three lessons that you would give to entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting a company. Hmm. One, which I've said probably redundantly already is anchor into the problem, know the problem deeply and intimately. Um, two is, is don't go it alone. Um, I think there's such a bias and almost a pressure that you've got to have it all figured out. Um, and you've got to do it all yourself. And the sooner you can build a team, a mentor base, a group of advisors, join an incubator, like find a community, just don't go it alone. It's, it is a very isolating, it's a very lonely journey oftentimes, um, you know, don't, don't go it alone. Um, and the third, and this may seem fluffy, but it's like, go big, like go dream big, dream really big and don't sell yourself short. Um, I think there's so often this notion that it's, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a small idea that will always be small and, and people are challenged to really stretch, um, their wings and, and think bigger and if for nothing other than the exercise of like, think as big as you possibly can, like think the dream of all dreams of who your investors may be or what the magazine cover might look like, or, you know, the number of people that you might serve, like really stretch to dream big and then back yourself into an area that you feel that that's comfortable and realistic. But if you start from the place of reality, <laughs> you'll never go anywhere uh, <laughs> as an entrepreneur. Like it's always hard. It's so that that dream and that aspiration and whatever you write on that whiteboard or in your journal, like that's what's going to wake you up in the morning. And that's what's going to get you through the hard times. Being perpetually unrealistic. <laughs> um, so broadening out a little bit from SeedSpot, I'm just curious about you as a human. Um, what does your daily routine look like right now? And do you have any practices in your life that help you keep help keep you grounded? 
Ooh, great questions. Um, my life right now looks um, like I have a one-month-old um, and a three-year-old startups in my home, which I do. <laughs> I have a son and a daughter, and um, they're the center of gravity at the moment. So uh, the morning routine uh, starts with them and ends with them, and I think that is the most grounding thing I have in my day. Um, and it's fascinating. I think as a founder and as an entrepreneur and as someone that you know, is around startups all day long. It's like you look at these little creatures and and their own personalities and temperaments and the way that they move and adjust and acclimate to the world. And like, there's just nothing more beautiful and centering than that. So um, that for me is, yeah, the, the anchor point. And I think tactically because of that and being a founder and being a female and being a mom and like this integrated identity that I've taken on, um, my days look integrated. I mean, the number of times that my daughter sat on my lap during a Zoom conference call or gone across the country with me on over 200 flights, which uh, at the age of three she has, um, there is no differentiation between, you know, being a mom and being a CEO. It's just a fluid and integrated life that, that I've chosen to lead. And if there's one like tactical thing that helps me survive that it is being very intentional every day about the three things that I need to get done. And there's a lot of like anecdotal research around um, why like prioritizing is important. But for me, the laundry list is, is continuous. The to-do list is never ending. And so every morning waking up and saying, what are the three things that I'm going to do today that are going to move the needle for seed spot and doing those first uh, not procrastinating and waiting until everything else is done off the, the small checklist. Um, but that has helped me focus um, in knowing that if nothing else, if I get those three things done, um, the rest is gravy. Hmm. I will never forget the moment that I met you, which was at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit, um, which is down in Austin, Texas. And it's CEOs only um, of companies with five million or more in revenue. And so somehow you and I were there and we were like two of the only women <laughs> under the ages of 40 in attendance. And I met you and you had your daughter with you at this like huge conference of predominantly white male older CEOs. You just brought your daughter with you. And I was just like, I love this woman. <laughs> we just, yeah, and I just felt such a connection to you ever since. But uh, just kind of modeling that, it was it was extraordinary to see. Thank you. I think it's it's like it is. Um, and there's there have been women that have modeled that for me, right? And and I think more women need to need to model that, or at least be open about the challenges and struggles and opportunities and sacrifices you make to to do it. Because um, I think it's often the perception that you you can't have both and um, obviously a lot of varying opinions about that, but I think the gift I feel that, um, you know, I've given both myself and my daughter and my family and, um, is the fact that like, we're doing this together. Um, and that my daughter got to meet you. I count as one of like a great opportunity in her life. And she got to see her mom in a room full of predominantly white male CEOs and look differently. And I think that, modeling is really important for daughters and sons to, to see in the world that um, there is a different path and that we don't have to bifurcate our lives in order to do both successfully. So kind of going from the day to day and broadening out to the narrative arc of your entire life. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you can talk to me about a life changing moment that you've had on your journey. Mm. 
I mean, the quintessential moment for me that started this whole <laughs> path down entrepreneurship, um, I was actually a student at Arizona State in broadcast journalism. I really, really thought I was going to be the next Katie Couric. Um, <laughs> I had massive aspirations of like living in New York and working on national television. And um, now the aspiration is like to be interviewed by Katie Couric um, <laughs> one day. But, um, Dream but big. I, I re- yeah, but I really thought that I would... Um, I would be a broadcast journalist. And so after my freshman year in college, I had an opportunity to travel to a rural village in Mexico. It was a volunteer trip. And I went down with, you know, 12 other college age students and we were there for a summer volunteering, um, in a very rural community, um, serving as translators in medical clinics and repairing these like palapa huts and working alongside the community. And, and it shifted my perspective of the world dramatically. Um, and I don't say with a lot of pride that I was, you know, 18 years old at the time and I'd never witnessed, I'd never really realized I'd, I'd read headlines and seen the news, but like I hadn't immersed myself in how a large portion of the world actually lives and, and how rich that experience was for me and how, by you know Western standards, or um, that this community had had nothing, and yet they had everything. Um, they had a sense of hope and a sense of aspiration and a sense of family and a sense of values, and and it just radically shifted my worldview and thinking. You know, how is it that I was raised in a middle class family, went to a good public school education, um, or went to a good public school, received a great education, but never was aware of how the world looked or what problems existed within it. And so I came back from that trip and on the back of a barf bag wrote down this idea that there should be an organization that would educate and empower young people to become aware of global issues and and change them alongside the community. And so that started for me, this journey down the nonprofit path and the startup path. And I launched my first nonprofit um, my senior year in college with the support of Arizona State University and the former president of the university, Dr. Laddie Kaur, became my first mentor. Um, and that started the whole thing. So sleeping in a hut, showering in the rain, burning my toilet paper um, was by far the most transformative uh, of my life in, in terms of uh, what set this career path <laughs> in motion. <laughs> and now instead of saying uh, back of the napkin sketch, do you say back of a barf bag sketch? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I do say ideas can start anywhere. The the misperception that you've got to have a 40 point slide deck and, you know, 50 page business plan is, is passe. So I love <laughs> it. Can start anywhere. <laughs> um, so I'm curious for you right now, you're, we're actually talking to you while you're on maternity leave. Um, you've got so many things going on. What do you think is kind of the most important thing in your life right now? Hmm. I mean, the obvious is like family, like my husband is two children, like that is the, is the center of gravity. Um, I think the most important thing I'm, I'm stirring on right now, um, both intellectually and kind of spiritually and emotionally is, is this like, what now, um, you know, what now in the world, where are we as humans, what is happening in the environments around us? What are these communities doing, um, that we're serving, I think I'm stirring on this, like, what's the bigger, what's, what's the next, what's the the growth, what's the trajectory? Um, how do I, you know, come off of maternity leave and, and double down? And I think looking around and reading news headlines and you name the publication, you name the crises, like there's some stuff happening out there. Um, and we need more people uh, solving problems, period. And so I feel this, 
I think, renewed responsibility to enable and empower and inspire more people to solve problems and, and to do it myself. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm stirring on that um, as a new kind of focal point of like, what what's happening? <laughs> uh, and how do we collectively take action and, and create some meaningful, significant change? And And so coming from that place of kind of deep reflection and also looking at the numerous crises that we're facing right now, what is giving you hope? Mm, women. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that was not a, uh, yeah, you didn't paint Yeah, we planned that. that. <laughs> so, um, truly, 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 like women, my husband and I often talk about it. It's like women and girls are the future. Um, and that's not to diminish the role of men and boys, but I do think there is a, um, a movement afoot and more and more women that are taking on leadership roles that are demonstrating a different path forward, um, individuals that identify even um, with a feminine energy, just this notion that, that there is a different way. Um, and I think bucking up against a lot of the patriarchal norms that have become so accustomed, not just in the startup community, but in the world at large. Um, and that's giving me hope to see more and more women investors coming forward and investing in women founders, um, more women starting companies, more women hiring female executives versus feeling, you know, competitive against their female counterparts, more women supporting women. Um, and honestly, Megan, like the work that you're doing and conscious companies doing is beautiful. Like women are coming together and really galvanizing support around each other and not a superficial way and not in a threatening way. Um, but I'm gaining a lot of strength and a lot of inspiration from the women around me and those that I hope to inspire to, to, to come on this journey with all of us, um, that we, we just need more of it. A huge thanks today goes out to Courtney Klein and her whole team over at Seedspot, as well as to our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the entire Conscious Company Media team. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.